Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Wilderness Podcast. In this episode, I interview Dr. Joseph Scalia, a frequent guest on this program and board member with the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance in Bozeman, Montana. Joe is a practicing psychoanalyst and social critic who has a long history of involvement with the wilderness movement in southwest Montana. In this episode, we talk about societal change as an important component of the wilderness movement, Joe's career as a psychoanalyst, the perversion of truth, Felix Guattari's The Three Ecologies, Nipa shortcomings, the dark, obscene underbelly of public lands politics and recreation, neoliberalism and how it drives mainstream conservation, psychological symptomatology of capitalism, treating society as the patient, mechanisms of societal change, what drives the big greens, confronting painful truths, and the unwillingness of many in the grassroots environmental movement to confront reality and advocate for radical change. I can start with this, that, that I, I think there is a resistance to facing certain aspects of what's going on in the world um, from both the mainstream and the grassroots environmental movements there are different resistances, some of them caused by similar phenomena, um, but definitely, definitely different things that are, if you will, negatively hallucinated, you know, like denied. What is, what is negative hallucination? Right. I was just going to say, yeah, so denied is too mild and not specific enough. It's like, so negative hallucination means not seeing what is right in front of your face. So hallucinating it negatively, you know, instead of hallucinating a thing that's not there, hallucinating that a thing isn't there that actually is. So I want to make sure we address that. And and a way that that has come out recently um, has been in even internal dissension within the Gallatin Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance when we were forming what some wanted to call a mission statement. And, and I think I initially, and then some others wanted to call a vision and mission statement. You know, the mission is to get as much into wilderness of the Custer Gallatin National Forest as we can, you know, legislated into wilderness under the 1964 Wilderness Act. But the vision was that we ended up adopting has to do with or essentially is in my paraphrasing um, a kind of a Leopoldian land ethic like looking at what is the society that we're that we need to make that we don't have yet that will um, sustain that mission um, that will in perpetuity that won't let it be undermined as time goes on, as, as capitalism's necessary um, and compulsive uh, consumption of everything um, continues, things that are currently protected will not be protected. And we see that even in the Forest Service's 
basically excising existing laws from how they have to uh, make certain land use designations. They've found all sorts of shortcuts around those to um, to continue to exploit, extract, justify destruction of the land. And so, so even in the grassroots side of things, there was like, oh, no, we don't want to talk about a vision statement. We, you know, I don't have the bandwidth for social change or good luck with that social change or blah, 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 talking about social change. Um, just, you know, sometimes very nasty, you know, like how dare you or, you know, I can't stand what you write. I can't stand to hear you speak. You know, what do you, what I, do you call that in psychoanalysis speech, that resistance? Yeah, well, resistance is a, a technical term in psychoanalysis, um, and it means, you know, creating a, a false narrative to avoid facing something that one doesn't know how to come to terms with or can't articulate but is being pushed around by. So I'm going to read the mission statement and the vision statement of the Galton-Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. And for full disclosure, I am on the board of Gaiwa. And Joe, you're the president, and we'll get into your introduction here next. But the the mission statement is to protect and restore the ecological integrity of the Custer-Galta National Forest and all remaining wilderness-quality lands in the northern greater Yellowstone ecosystem by congressionally designated wilderness under the 1964 Wilderness Act. And for listeners who have not heard about the Custer-Gallatin National Forest. It's just to the north of Yellowstone National Park. And our organization has identified about 1.15 million acres of wilderness quality lands that could be designated. So that's our mission. And then our vision statement, which surprisingly, I mean, we had, like Joe, you mentioned, we had a lot of strife going through this. And, and you think, you know, just one sentence of a vision could could have so much pushback and and conflict is is pretty incredible it's it's really it's interesting more than anything so the vision is we envision a greater yellowstone ecosystem preserved in perpetuity for its world class wildlife and wilderness values for present and future generations in defiance of political and economic expediency what does that vision mean to you what does it mean to defy the political and economic dominant hegemony, essentially? Well, that the current way land use decisions are being made is based ultimately on keeping those in political power in power and keeping those in the money, making ever more money. Um, And then um, justifying the environmental decisions in any number of ways, rationalizing what's been done and denying that the decisions have been made for um, uh, the maintenance or the increase of, of power and money um, by by the wealthy and the politically and socially powerful or popular. All right, let's let's start by you introducing yourself. So we we did jump into the conversation here, but I I do want to keep rolling with the interview now. So please introduce yourself and tell the audience who you are. Okay. So I am going to read some of this. 
So I have a, a SIA-D degree. It's a doctor of psychoanalysis in psychoanalysis, society, and culture. Um, I've lived in Montana since 1980. Um, I came here as a staff psychologist at what was then the Warm Springs State Hospital Children's Unit. Before that, I was a staff psychologist at what was considered a progressive community treatment program at Arkansas State Prison, which was the site of the movie Brubaker, starring Robert Redford as the penitentiary's embattled warden. Both intervention programs at the state prison and the state hospital attempted to utilize then, right, this wouldn't happen today, uh, attempted to utilize psychoanalytic concepts and practices in the treatment of highly troubled patients. So I became a psychoanalyst later when I grew disenchanted with psychology and the psi profession, so psychology, counseling, psychotherapy, social work, psychiatry, um, as they capitulated to what I call the dominant mental health, insurance, pharmacology, industrial complex. Um, so I'm a psychoanalyst and I'm very emphatic about that. I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm not a psychologist. Um, because those things mean something like keeping a person adjusted to the existing society so that they aren't too troubled by it, whereas psychoanalysis means becoming able, it helps a person become able to face the existing society and the symptomatic effects of not being able to face it. These, so the one is, the former is just adjust and don't try to change the world. The latter is um, do try to change the world, try to come to terms with it and do something about it. So there, so the latter psychoanalysis is subversive. I, I will digress for a moment and say, and, and this is coming back to some of the business of capitalism. There's this vignette about when, the only trip Freud made to America, he's sailing into a port and and he tells his um, compatriots, his travel companions who are psychoanalysts, the Americans don't know we're bringing them the plague. And he meant psychoanalysis in its subversive nature. But the last laugh was on Freud because Freud didn't know that America's capitalism um, would ultimately defeat psychoanalysis ability to spread throughout the populace and, mm -hmm. and capitalism's ability to, to pervert in the public discourse what is psychoanalysis, to besmirch it without knowing what it really is, etc. So to, to nullify its subversive um, elements. So then I'll, I'll just jump to so I came here in 1980 with my wife. We've been here for, well, the whole time. And so, you know, for over 40 years. And we were blown away by the beauty here. And I was only peripherally involved uh, environmentally, that is, I, in terms of activism, 
I would just periodically put my toe in it and didn't understand what all was out there in terms of activism for a long time. But I was seeing all along the destruction that was happening. And then um, in around 2000, I got on the board of directors of Montana Wilderness Association, um, several years later became its president and then served a year as all presidents there at least then did as its quote immediate past president. I established there um, an environmental ethics committee. I don't know if it still exists. If it does, I can guarantee you it's a it's a it's an obscene or perverse version of what it originally was and what I intended it to be. That is, I intended it to look at how does MWA risk um, giving away its values and ideals to um, the funders that were giving it ever more and ever more money. So, I mean, that's subversive in itself and looking at how is capitalism doing harm to the environmental movement. I became public about that criticism, by the way, which we'll get back to. And then sometime later, um, well, and then I began to to more research what was going on and to periodically write, mostly for some time, um, guest columns in Montana newspapers. But then I expanded that quite a bit in recent years. And I became president, as you said, of Gallatin and Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance and have been its president for three years. And so MWA, which has changed its name now, excised the word wilderness, Montana Wilderness Association from its name and now calls itself Wild Montana because wilderness is not popular uh, with its donors and with the collaboration and compromise model, which we will also doubtless get into. Which we which, used to joke about that they should drop the wilderness name, and then they did, right? <laughs> what What's the joke? What's that? Well, well, we we used to say that they should just drop the word wilderness from their name, and then they actually did, right? And then they did. That's right. Yeah. A perfect irony, huh? Uh-huh. <laughs> so... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of perverting of the truth that's gone on here. Um, but then, you know, so here comes um, Gaiwa, Gallon and Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance, and we start uh, talking about some of these perversions and criticizing the uh, mainstream groups, the big greens. And then we got into dissension amongst ourselves, which you um, explained very well a little bit ago, and which was surprising. It's like, wow, what can explain why we're fighting over such things? Um, and then there was the fallout. Why can't environmentalists get along as though somehow we should magically be able to get along, whereas, you know, no social groups um, collectives in history have just gotten along. There always are splits in groups, but somehow we were expected to magically do otherwise. You're and, talking about internally or or with like the, the, the broader community, right? Because you often hear that, for, you know, the, the saying like, oh, it's just a circular firing squad, right? It's like, it's really not though, like it, it, in, in some elements, right? Well, 
I mean, I think it's it's both, you know, so I mean, you'll have oppositions like between psychoanalysis and psychology, but you'll also have splits within um, like psychoanalytic institutes or within psychology, you know, there will be those who are like, oh, we have to go with trauma theory. No, we have to go with cognitive behavior therapy, which are very different phenomena or within psychoanalysis, we have to go with this version of you know, how the human comes into being as a unique entity and someone else, oh no, we have to go with this other version. And so you'll have a psychoanalytic institute, one institute fighting within itself and then sometimes splitting off into different institutes. This is, this is humanity so far. We have not grown up beyond this. Right, and you find those rifts and fractures like in very interesting ways, right? Just going through these processes, like whether it's articulating a vision statement or moving forward with certain work, how you want to talk about things. But, you know, talking about the wilderness movement writ large and the circular firing squad comparison to the grassroots versus the big grains, I find to be really problematic because it's dismissive of the actual philosophical differences between the groups and how they approach the work. Like Mm -hmm. to me, I don't feel like the wilderness society and Montana wilderness association or now Montana wild. I don't think they're a part of the movement anymore. So I can't say that I'm in a circular firing squad with them. I feel like there's, there's somewhere else, right? They're, they're now the democratic party essentially, which has been captured by, corporate control. So it's just a bad analogy in my book in that case. Yeah. And I agree with you. I just have seen the need to also critique us, the grassroots environmental movement and how a minority of us and our board has made it so that we are not an internal minority So we did adopt that vision statement, but only with strife. And we lost some board members over it. So there's a split. Some members of the grassroots community only want to, quote, be positive and speak of what is good about wilderness and don't want to criticize the mainstream groups. But then they'll virulently and derogatorily criticize their own fellow grassroots environmentalists who do want to confront um, the the destructivity of the big greens. And so that, you know, they don't want to, to look at what Felix Guattari, who wrote the book, The Three Ecologies, um, and was a, a radical philosopher and psychoanalyst called The Three Ecologies, like the of the individual, the subject, he called it, the, the socius, like what makes up society. And by that, he included capitalism and was a critic of capitalism for the same reasons. We will talk about it today and have already mentioned. And then environmentalism, so that the three ecologies are environmental ecology, social ecology, and subjective ecology. And so again, social including a critique of capitalism, and that these are inextricably related, and that you can't protect one without protecting the others. You can't look at one without looking at all three and how they interact with each other. But but you will find in the grassroots movement, 
no, we're only going to look at environmental ecology. And, and so you have these people who are busting their asses in the grassroots movement, filing objection after objection after objection to Forest Service proposals and BLM Bureau of Land Management proposals. Um, and these are exhaustive and exhausting uh, objections to research, compose, and file. And, and on the one hand, thank God they're doing it because they're at least um, lessening the flood, metaphorically speaking, but, but the flood is still coming and they're just diverting it and holding it off somewhat, but it's coming in its entirety ultimately if we don't transform society through looking at those three, quote, ecologies. And so we get all of this scapegoating and ugliness internally, you know, don't talk about that, only talk about this. And, and so we defeat ourselves. Yeah, the NEPA process is interesting, right? It's like, they put these project proposals out, individuals and groups comment on them. And then if you feel like your claims are strong enough, you can go to court if you can find an attorney to fight it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Alliance for mm -hmm. the Wild Rockies has been very successful. Uh, Western Watersheds Project, Wild Earth Guardians has seen success, but you're still like just poking a hole in this dam that's just ready to burst. And um, I guess it sort of is bursting. So maybe that's not really the best, the best analogy, but it really just kind of feels like playing within a system that is ultimately destructive right? It's like paying yeah. fealty to a system. It's almost legitimizing it in a way, but that's the only tool we have. So, you know, thank God for the National Environmental Policy Act. However, you know, it's, it's not enough to change the course that we're, that we're on, which is ultimately the destruction of, of complex life on this planet. It's just not enough. Right. And, and, and the land use managers are finding ways around those laws and justifying it and finding ways to win in court in their um, circumventing laws like NEPA, like the National Environmental um, uh, Protection Policy Act. Um, it's, it's just uh, it's horrifying, but they're getting away with it. And then they tweak the projects, right? So something will get challenged in court and then they just make some modifications to be able to push it through again later. You yeah. know, in, in some cases, opposition is so fierce that they, they leave it alone. Right. Uh -huh. Um, so go somewhere else, right? Yeah. They'll go somewhere else cause they, they want to get the trees or they want to get the minerals or, or whatnot. So they try to find like the areas with the highest uh, return on investment with, the minimum amount of public pushback. So like the furthest from population centers usually works um, unless it's around like a beloved wilderness area, for instance, the, the, whole, the whole Holland Lake yeah. campaign was, was really interesting, right? I mean, that was a true grassroots campaign. I don't know that the big grains were involved in that. I, I have to, I'd have to look into it, but I'd really like to get them on the program to learn because they were able to stop this expansion of a lodge by powder corporation, which is out of park city, I believe, um, which would have essentially privatized this lodge expansion. And it was just pushed through really aggressively without 
um, you know, proper public input and, and really rushed it through. But that was a grassroots win. But they could just tweak the proposal now and push it through again. And what's, what's really disturbing yeah. about that is just like how much the Forest Service is beholden to corporate interest. It's really disturbing like to see it to see it everywhere but like each case you know shouldn't surprise us right and and that's kind of what you were saying earlier is like we shouldn't be surprised by what's happening we have to really face it and and make that sort of change so the public doesn't seem surprised you know like why is it why is it happening like the public needs to really be educated about these dark forces that are at work and have always been at work you know so here's another thing, though. It's like I, I would say education is not enough. So there are there are the concepts you can educate about, but then there is the dark underbelly, like what are the things motivating the laws? Um, and so that's things like greed and um, insatiable greed, and and that extends to um, sometimes people who identify as left or liberal, um, Democratic Party people. So I'm thinking especially of recreationists, of people who who want to ski and trail run and mountain bike and at some point, they're gonna, they're, you know, they're, they're start. There's a, a push now for um, e-bikes, you know, elect, you know, like battery-powered bikes <clears throat> to go farther and faster into what was the wilderness. But so it becomes not wilderness anymore. It becomes an imaginary version of the wilderness, and people imagine themselves as you know, being out in the wild and not recognizing that they've destroyed what was wild. And so it's due to this need to um, see yourself in this way that society, which includes very much capitalism determining the public discourse, um, has said uh, makes you an attractive, desirable, wonderful and happy human being. Um, and so that's the that's the dark underbelly, the obscene underbelly, as as a psychoanalytic cultural critic Slavoj Žižek has called it. And and so we've got to that's that's part of that subjective um, ecology of of Felix Guattari. That that's one of the things we've got to transform is the human's ability to to deal with what is that dark underbelly? What is, what do we keep unconscious? What have we not been able to bring into consciousness that is determining us and that is um, destroying our ability to use laws for our well-being? So we have like, we can say we're collaborating and compromising and being inclusive of traditionally opposing parties when we do this collaboration and compromise model, but we don't tell the truth that really parties who want to protect the wildness are excluded from those conversations. And so they're quite undemocratic. Um, and we don't tell the truth that we're just divvying up the land. And so that we're destroying wilderness study areas, we're, we're putting them into little pie slices, 
and and something right next to it then can be logs something right next to that can have you know gigantic you know very long and huge acre encompassing mountain bike trails and next to that motorized recreation i mean and so it's not wild anymore but you can have a group like the gallon and forest partnership with all of its money from its big greens doing a movie that shows people in this imagination of being wild and wonderful and running out into the wilderness and you know and what and is the gallatin forest partner what is the gallatin forest partnership joe so it it denies this underbelly so it's this bringing together of wild montana formerly montana wilderness association the wilderness society which used to be basically a subversive group that that took on the capitalistic powers for the sake of the land but now has been has altered its discourse to be in sync with those powers um and um Stuart Brandberg, its first executive director, who died a couple of years ago, um, was horrified. At, I visited him once. I had the honor of visiting him once when he was like 90 years old at his home in the Bitterroot Valley. And we spent a few hours together. And he was horrified at what the Wilderness Society has become for the very reasons we're talking about. So also, the Gallon and Forest Partnership includes the Greater Yellowstone Coalition, which has founding board members who are today also horrified by what it has become, just like I am horrified by what Montana Wilderness Association has become and how it's perverted its environmental ethics committee um, and its environmental ethics. So um, these- And many other groups too, right? The Winter Wild Wildlands Alliance, the Livingston Bike Club. Yep. Yeah, um, I haven't looked at their webpage in a while, but yeah, there's a, there's a whole group of folks, and 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 who's missing? Who's missing from this collaborative? Right, and who's missing are groups who say we should not be carving up the land. They're just excluded from the get-go. They are not allowed through the door. It's like when Max Baucus had the Obamacare hearings um, right after Obama was first elected. And um, for uh, single party payers were not allowed into the discussions of what would constitute Obamacare. They just were eliminated yeah. from the beginning. Same thing happens here yeah. in the collaboration and compromise model that is called democratic or implied to be democratic when it's very exactly not. Okay, to get at that dark underbelly, right? Don't you think there's a component of education that, that we need, that we all need? And, and that's really critical. I mean, I know education isn't enough, but like, that's where we start. That's why we have these conversations. That's why you and I and others think about these things and, and try to articulate them in our own minds and then try to disseminate it to the public, right? It's really hard to understand what's going on right now. Yeah. And, and I did say earlier that education is not enough. I agree with you. Um, it's just, so it's got to be both. It's got to look at what is consciously determining us that we, that is censored, that isn't allowed into the public discourse. And so we just don't know it because it's being hidden. And then what is, what are our unconscious resistances to knowing? And that's 
harder to that you can't do just with education that you've got to do by um, somehow rendering people capable of encountering their complicity with the destruction of the land. And that's very difficult. So those two things have to happen together. And you're not going to learn about this stuff by watching the corporate media, right? Um, you're not going to learn it by following the big green groups. They're sort of all in this together and they're constructing these narratives that doesn't leave any question uh, as to what they're doing, like whether it's right or wrong. It's just kind of this is how it is. Um, Don't look over here. Don't ask these questions. If you do, you're a radical, you're an extremist, you're a freaking commie, whatever. Right. So the the main construct of our existence right now and i'm sort of at a loss for words because it's so complex and daunting is neoliberalism so i want to talk about neoliberalism because it influences everything it's the air we breathe it's the water we drink it is our entire lives and and when you're when you're immersed in this it's very hard to be able to look outside right it's just like you're in your house, which is neoliberalism with no windows. How do you try to vision what could be outside the house? I don't know if that's really sure. the best analogy. But there's economic and political and societal implications to this system. And I just want to explore neoliberalism with you a bit. And I have some thoughts, and I want to hear your thoughts, and maybe we can unpack this a bit. Because I don't think people really think about this this system of neoliberalism that that we live in today and and what it really means for us as humans right okay so i first of all let me say i one of the things that happens amongst cultural critics is neoliberalism is criticized without also criticizing capitalism. So I'll come back to that. And, and I'll, well, first I'll say, and that's very destructive in its omission. Um, and I've written about this. Uh, so, but to answer you for, for now, so neoliberalism is the version of capitalism under which we've been living since the late 70s, the early 80s, It got really stamped into being by Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US and and then carried on by here by US presidents ever since, including Democratic presidents, including Bill Clinton, including Barack Obama. It's not just George W. Bush. It's not just Donald Trump. It's all of them. It started Um, under under Carter when he started deregulating the railroads. Um, Okay, there you go. Yeah, so... so the 70s. Yeah. Yep. And so it's yeah. And so it's like you said, deregulation. So it's 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 letting um, it's removing any kind of semblance semblance of of controls on capitalism that would, you know, keep capital that that purport to keep capitalism or used to purport to keep capitalism sufficiently in check so that it wouldn't create, quote, too many injustices, inequities, destructions. And then those regulations, well, which was 
it's like, what is too many? And who gets to decide that? And who gets to decide who is left out of the benefits? Who gets to decide who doesn't get basic human rights? But, um, well, the wealthy and the powerful. But then what happened under um, neoliberalism is just those quote safeguards were done away with one after another after another and the new and, deal programs too were, were deconstructed right like welfare and um just making people so desperate to work and and you know to have to go in hard into the machine even if your body's falling apart right? yeah, yeah yep and and so you have some people well this is an aside but certainly relevant you have some people then identifying with with um, very oppressive leaders who who are very active in that kind of destructive deregulation and willing to lay down their lives for those destructive leaders, willing to just accept what they say as as absolute truth. And and I should say that's on the right and the left. It's easy to go to as me as a as a radical leftist, even a militant leftist. So radical as in looking at the interlinking of everything, militant as in we've got to confront this stuff. But but it's true from the left also. It's like, you know, pretending that Joe Biden and Barack Obama are wonderful and protecting against injustice and those bad people like George Bush and Donald Trump just went after the injustice. Well, that's that's not it's just o- Obama and Clinton, they're not the lefts, right? I mean, they're the new Democratic Party, which has been republicanized, essentially, uh, really hard under Clinton, right? We don't, yeah. have a, we don't have a left anymore. I mean, the Democratic yeah. Party chased out Ralph Nader and Dennis Kucinich, and, um, you know, those are sort of the last gasps of, of, the, uh, of the true left, Right, but you have people who identify as left still, and that's as you said, the Democratic Party. But right. there, as Noam Chomsky says, we we are one party system, the Capital Party. So to go back to neoliberalism, then, and a thing you said earlier, it um, as the political philosopher uh, Wendy Brown put it, um, has economized everything. So. Um, so that everything has been commodified. Everything that we identify with, everything that we do in our day-to-day life, everything that we desire, what we consider our ideals, our norms, our values, they all have been um, sort of carved into our bodies and our minds in such ways that, um, that they fuel profits for the the ever shrinking numbers of the ever growing more powerful and and wealthy well privileged of our society and and so i mean this is neoliberalism and and it has split people apart it's it's made it so there's this rise of hatred and fundamentalism and anti-fundamentalism which itself can be fundamentalist and and so we've got just all of this hatred and scapegoating and vilifying of one another across quote party lines um and within parties and not facing that we've succumbed to this this 
this version of capitalism, which has all capitalism has always moved. And unless we create a new economic system, it will have a new iteration after neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. We don't know what that will be, but it won't remain neoliberalism. It too will give way to something else. It may give way to global governmental um, capitalism. Where I mean, the corporation's already multinational, right? So they're okay. running around, stashing money, dodging yep. regs. Um, so we, we already kind of are, are there. In, right. in some kind ways, right? Global totalitarian capitalism and and, yep. and and the totalitarians or the corporations. Yep. Yeah, it's interesting like how let's talk more about how people who think they're left or, or maybe they, they really believe it, but and and that they feel that the Democratic Party is somehow representing them, right? So they speak in this feel your pain language to to steal a quote from Chris Hedges. Um, there's a lot of virtue signaling, a lot of, and at the end of the day, there, there's still a corporate controlled party. Um, and the differences between Republicans and Democrats ultimately are, are very small, right? They're just, uh, based on social issues and this division that the corporate media loves to promulgate, you know, keeps us divided and doesn't really allow us to um, to critique and to challenge these dominant systems that are that are holding us down so the, the left has just been completely eviscerated in this country and it was actually quite brilliant you know how they went about it I mean the 60s were a really radical time right I mean change was in the air um, business was all of a sudden being highly regulated when it comes to natural resources, uh, we could, you know, focus in on that because that's really more the theme of uh, the sort of work that, that we're, we're engaged in here. But it was very, very effective. You know, the, the, the corporations basically started funding and buying off the uh, Democratic Party, um, destroying what was left of the liberal class that was, you know, fighting for for justice and and smart regulations and they essentially bought them off and and now we're you know we're left with a with a weak and feckless democratic party that can ultimately not bring the change that we need and i i associate to just kind of free associate if you will to um you know, where my mind just spontaneously goes without any conscious intention or rationale consciously for it to go there. That's free association of psychoanalysis in the clinic, quote unquote, you know, in treatment um, and how, how the analyzant is asked to speak to, you know, to what to address. It's what comes to mind just as it floats by without your intention, floats by the screen of your mind, if you will. Um, I associate um, to the the nasty fighting um, within even the grassroots environmental community, yeah, the enmity is everywhere. It's it's uh, and if you dare speak what the underbelly is, you know you you can guarantee you will be vilified by some parties somewhere in in some you know eviscerating feeling or you know persecutory ways uh, just is is it's part of the territory yeah 
Well, I, let's let's wrap up the neoliberalism discussion, but I, I still want to just make sure we touch on a few things. So, you know, you did talk about the capitalistic component of this, which is which is everything. You know, we can't ignore it. Um, so it marks unfettered, unregulated capitalism, uh, the rise of corporate control, and we just talked about the buying off of the Democratic Party, and we talked earlier about basically the same phenomenon happening with the big greens, basically the buying off of the big greens, um, getting them to come to the table and to uh, collaborate and compromise essentially to work with, uh, with those who would otherwise um, be their enemies, essentially. And, and I'll uh, just add real quickly, and, and getting them to believe that they're doing the right thing. And most of them, I think, really think they're doing the right thing. So their, their ideals have also been bought. And they don't realize that. Yeah, that's a good that's a good point. How do we understand where we are today? I mean, John Ralston Saul described it as a coup d'état in slow motion, right? A, a corporate coup d'état, um, which started under Carter. And uh, the philosopher Sheldon Woolen described the system as inverted totalitarianism. It's basically a system where corporations have subverted and corrupted American democracy, uh, drawing similar similarities to that of Nazi Germany, which is um, sort of jarring to folks, uh, probably to hear. Yeah. So that's that's where we're at, and you know the societal implications. Uh, I think we need to talk about this a bit too, like the the shattering of social safety nets the deindustrialization of the United States, the attacks on unions. I mean, we even saw Joe Biden not really sticking up for the, the railroad workers and getting their sick days. Um, so, you know, again, the Democratic Party is, they're not standing up for the workers. Also a failing healthcare system. Yeah. Where patients are shuffled in and out of doctor's offices so quickly from one specialist to another. Yeah. Just in and out the door, right? No time with the patients and people are, are sick from COVID and long, long-term long injuries, sustained working in, in, in really harsh and predatory system of capitalism. So it's really just, it's taken out the American worker, the American citizen who might otherwise want to see change and is just so propagandized and, and burdened by the, uh, the heavy boot of, of neoliberal capitalism. So, as first and foremost a psychoanalyst, uh, I, I'll say in terms of that subjective ecology of Guattari's three ecologies, you know, what constitutes the human, it's like there is, as one of my teachers, Christopher Bolas, called the inherent trauma of being human, there is a, an insatiable longing in us this you know always wanting more and more and more and if i get this i'll be happy and then you get it and then you want more and that never stops and and so um most people never come to terms with that by far they don't understand they're driven by that they don't understand how it's determined their desires they don't understand how it's ruined their marriages, how they they don't understand. And so they're controlled by this. And 
And so this, so I, I wrote the paper, The Inherent Trauma of Conservation, as a play on Bolus's The Inherent Trauma of Being Human, to say that to, to be a conservationist, you have to deal with that, that you've got to face, you know, you can't keep doing, I want more, I want more, I want more. You've got to you've got to find another way to have fulfillment that doesn't cause destruction while you're being blind to the destruction. This is this is one of our biggest problems. And and capitalism does not want us to look at that for obvious reasons. Capitalism needs us to not look at that. If if the collective, if the human collective looked at that and took account of it, there there could not be capitalism. We would find another way to exist. The another um, psychoanalyst and philosopher, cultural critic, who was also an economist in the beginning, Cornelius Castoriadis, and wrote a lot about democracy, said that to have a democracy. Um, a true democracy, which he claims has never existed in the way and in the way he writes about it and conceives of it, uh, which is you wouldn't just have representative government, which, you know, is not going to be truly represented, representative and is easily subvertible. But you would have all citizens having a real say, being really heard and understood and then debating and then coming to some agreement knowing you know nobody's going to be entirely satisfied with it but we have at least at least done our best to do that you you have to be able to essentially think for yourself you have to have come to terms with the inherent trauma of being human you have to be what castoriadis called autonomous um and and so you've got to not be just easily swayed by the dominant public discourse. So you've got to know in your bones and in knowledge, education, as you've pointed out a couple of times, that there is this obscene underbelly to any you know, public discourse and that there is no all-solving um, uh, narrative or discourse that we're going to generate. And so we've always got to look for and find and grapple with that underbelly. That would be an autonomous being capable of doing that and driven to do that and then finding generative, creative ways to deal with that and to give something back to society in the doing of that. Um, but this is, again, the minority of people. And we don't have, so Castoriadis also said, to have people, to have a, a, a preponderance of people like that, you need a society that generates that in people. But then he's like, but, but you know, how do we get there? What comes first, the chicken or the egg? And that's where we're caught. Um, we, we have a system that... Um, works against that sort of thinking for oneself and we have people fleeing for various reasons from thinking for themselves and so supporting a system that 
doesn't want them to think for themselves. So this is this is uh, horrifically what we're up against, and the fallout is, you know, it's the destruction of civilization of in in the biosphere. I'd like to hear what do you hear from your clients? Like, are they what what are they struggling with? Um, in their personal lives, uh, in their take on society, because mm-hmm. uh, I think this is really important, right? Uh, I mean, you have sort of a a little uh, you you have a you have a view in, in into into society that a lot of us don't get to see, right? Um, let me here. I'm pulling up a thing. Let me see if I can pull it up. Yeah, let me read you a thing. It's it's in answer to what you've just said. So it's about the phenomenon of cutting, you know, people who use knives, razors, whatever they need to use to to self-harm their skin and make themselves bleed. Yeah. So here's a a quote from the book, um, Welcome to the Desert of the Real by, by Slavoj Žižek, whose name I mentioned once or twice earlier, far from being suicidal, far from indicating a desire for self-annihilation, cutting is a radical attempt to gain or regain a hold on reality or another aspect of the same phenomenon to ground the ego. So like how you identify with things in the world and how you imagine yourself, who you are, to ground the ego firmly in bodily reality against the unbearable anxiety of perceiving oneself as non-existent. Cutters usually say that once they see the warm red blood flowing out of the self-inflicted wound, they, they feel alive again, firmly rooted in reality. So although, of course, cutting is a pathological phenomenon, it is nonetheless a pathological attempt at regaining some kind of normality, at avoiding a total psychotic breakdown. And then he goes on, he says, on today's market, we find a whole series of products deprived of, and then I would have to go into a whole nother thing that he's spoken of before what I just read. But but he brings capitalism into this is why I mentioned that last piece. But so cutting is one of one of the ways we see people dealing with the horrors of the world and its effects on their experience of being human, at dealing with the things they can't quite articulate, can't quite come to terms with, can't quite find a way of living um generatively creatively with that they can only experience it as um as horrific and um and as just well unbearable um that's one way you see it i mean yeah i see all sorts of symptomatology coming forth today so you see what's called bipolar um you see adhd um, you see more and more autism um, uh, diagnosed, more and more um, so-called borderline personality disorder diagnosed, um, depression, anxiety disorders, um, and and are these symptoms when, of capitalism? Yeah, yeah. They, these are symptoms of capitalism, insofar as capitalism. 
um, in in inculcates in us this note these notions of you know I, I don't have to accept lack the 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 lack in society the lack in 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 um, in wanting like its inability to fulfill me I don't have to accept those things right that 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 which capitalism tells us that I should long for this and that will make me happy the way capitalism inculcates us in that way yeah capitalism is complicit in this inextricably and so yeah all sorts of symptoms are being generated the the mental health uh, pharmaceutical insurance industrial complex or or profit complex um, has 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 made it so that people don't look to what unconsciously is causing my symptomatology. They just look to so-called therapies that ameliorate the anxiety, the whatnot. So they take pills for attention deficit and for hyperactivity, for depression, for anxiety, etc., which just keeps them well, the opposite of autonomous, heteronomous, what 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 Castoriadis spoke of, yeah, and so yeah, so we have all these new forms of of disorder, and um, and and we pretend as a collective that we're just getting better at identifying things, not that the failings in our civilization are generating new forms of psychopathology as the failings continue to evolve in their forms. And your clients, what do you hear about their desires or their longings or what do they say is missing in their lives? Have you seen any real breakthrough cases? Oh yeah. What have yeah. they to- what have they told you? What what have you observed in them? Well, it's it's what I'm talking about. It's the people who come to terms with well, what I've called lack and and how the refusal of that or the inability to come to terms with that has generated symptomatology in them, has generated, you know, their belief in certain ideologies, morals, ideals, norms, desires um, that really aren't theirs. And, and that the silencing of themselves has disturbed the hell out of them without them realizing it and generated um, symptoms and presenting problems. And so um, they, they, they traverse all of that. People who get well traverse all of that and find ways to be peaceful and generative inside of that kind of i'll call it wisdom because knowledge implies it's just education and again it's 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 education and coming to terms with education's obscene underbelly so when clients come in you 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 have a lot of long time long-term clients right so it's it's a very kind of intensive long process just really broadly how does how does this process work like do you how do you identify the symptoms um how do you get them to recognize maybe what's happening in in themselves without suggesting that you know one or the other thing might be might be wrong this is a i mean really it's a 
an enormous answer and it's an ever-evolving answer it's a debated answer even all within psychoanalysis um but its shorthand answer that is agreed upon within psychoanalysis is it's making the unconscious conscious but how you do that yeah varies and so it's largely you're quite correct and and keenfully in keenly insightful when you you say you know to beware the analyst suggesting new ways of thinking um it's instead of that it's to um to ask questions or to underscore certain things that have been said and ask for associations to those things to ask for questions about gaps in the narrative well you were saying this and then you jumped to this how did you get from one thing to the other um how did you conclude this from that presupposition and so then they'll begin to wonder things that they hadn't thought about before and then that'll bring them to new gaps and um new inconsistencies and then you ask about those mm-hmm. and you you underscore those and and so gradually cumulatively um the 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 falsehoods in the story that has always inadequately um held them together gets revealed the falsehoods get revealed and and as they are there is a simultaneously occurring um capacity to to face those things to deal with these forms of lack we've spoken of and then ultimately um to i mean have an awakening to okay this is this is life and i need to live in this other way that i'd never considered before and that's the only place i can now imagine living the only internal place in relation to the world place i can now imagine as as anything i would ever want what can psychoanalysis teach us about ourselves and society and then i'm going to ask you later next can you treat society as the patient <laughs> So let's start with, can psychoanalysis teach us about ourselves? What can it teach us about ourselves and society? So, so I'll, I'll say a thing I've said already a couple or more times is, right, it's not just teaching. So there is knowledge as in French, connaissance, which is like that which you can teach. And then there is knowing like savoir-faire, a kind of knowledge like a knowing how. Um, so connaissance versus savoir, and the savoir comes through experience, not through being taught, but through discovering through your own experience and 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 coming to terms with. Yeah, thanks and for so, that distinction. That's important. I, I yeah. totally understand. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so what is your question then? What happens? Like what yeah, reiterate your question for me or repeat it. What, what does psychoanalysis reveal about ourselves and our society? I think that's a better way to, to put it. Yeah, well, really, it's it's the collection of things that I've talked about already. And, and, and that there is no, there is no grand answer. 
there is no thing that is going to take care of 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 everything that will just make me secure and that there is no more thing to worry about um like almost that that there is no magic basically that i am going to die um I, there will be that loss of my life. There will be loss of others in my life. There will people who I love are also going to die even after me and they will have to deal with that. Right. These are, these are tough things, but um, if you have gone through analysis, you know, you have become able to, to live with those things in ways that, um, aren't harmful to yourself or others and that actually um, give you peace and allow you to not be distracted, hyperactive, attention deficit, depressed, anxiety, overwhelmed, it's bipolar, etc., um, hallucinatory, delusional, schizophrenic, you know, um, but that let you um, be creative. And so, can you treat society as the patient? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's a it's a question I've been struggling with and continue to struggle with. Um, and and even, you know, I've been in arguments with fellow psychoanalysts over, right, this is a really hotly contested thing, even within psychoanalysis. And and so I mean in a way, so well, my, my most recent paper and a presentation in a shorter form of it, um, that a, a paper that's now submitted for potential publication, um, uh, deals with this question actually, and and I think yeah, you can, and and that's why the Gallon and Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance has a vision statement because we've talked about this and said, you know, we need to deal, we need to look at how the world has to change if a mission like ours is going to um, occur, but also remain, if it occurs, it can exist in perpetuity and not be undermined um, and then destroyed later. Um, and so um, I think there is an always a chipping away at those resistances, at the desire to avoid lack, um, a chipping away at that through education, but also through trying to constrain the others in conversation, in debates, um, in um, engagements of all sorts, in writings, in receivings of of appreciation or insult from writings or from presentations to just essentially be, um, if you will, peacefully militant about asking groups and their members to, um, or, or constraining them to look at the gaps in their stories, um, to look at the inconsistencies in their stories but but I am using the word constraining. So finding ways that they can't wiggle out of it, mm-hmm. and um, and knowing that when you do that, you have to be ready to um, be treated with um, their 
um, flight from paranoid anxieties, which will mean they're going to behave persecutorily towards you. They're going to be scapegoating. They're going to be demeaning those who will flee, but that there will be those who who will be curious and who will grapple with that and who will change. And then they will want to have that effect on others. And so that's all I know right now about Mm. how psychoanalysis can move in society. And those who are also psychoanalytically undertaking that question are at similar places in their conclusions, um, but have no illusions, none of us, um, in this theoretical and practice world of how do we change society, we have no illusions about the enormity of, of this prospect. Um, so taking us I, all through a, a collective analysis is um, like, what does that look like, right? Right. And, and while it looks hopeless, you know, we don't know how that might occur. And we don't know if in a thousand years of this kind of effort and its its cumulative effects, we might be a very different version of human that we may, we don't know how far we might have come in what the radical, I would call him psychoanalyst, Willie Apollon in Quebec calls the human quest, which by which he means our desire to express what is unique in each of us that um, that has been able to withstand the distortion by society's need to get us to comply with it. Um, we don't know how far we might have evolved as a collective if we keep at those of us who can do this work and withstand the difficulties of it by those who we would prefer to have appreciate us. Um, uh, we don't know how far we might come. And so, um, as the philosopher uh, Franco Berardi puts it, and Berardi was a, a friend of the per- a person I spoke of earlier, Guattari, they would talk about activism. And so, Berardi's still alive, Guattari is, is dead. Um, and Berardi talks about how they, they would argue about activism and how effective it can be. Um, And Guattari was more an activist and Berardi became less so. But but if you read Berardi, I don't think he's less an activist. He's doing what we're talking about Mm -hmm. um, in his writings. He's just not out there on the ground, maybe doing environmental activism like Gaiwa is doing or like Alliance for the Wild Rockies is doing. But he is doing this larger work of trying to um, constrain the collective through reachings of small components of it to a cumulative transformation. And, you know, for him, it's like he says, well, there is no alternative um, to living well uh, Mm -hmm. than doing this. So much of your work is quite academic and research-based, and it can be difficult to communicate ideas to the layperson to understand um, so that they might begin to heal and, and wake up. How do you best go about communicating these really complex ideas so that we can undergo a transformation? 
Right. I The best way for me has always been in actual conversation with people. And interestingly, I've found it mostly at social gatherings um, and probably mostly at big parties. Um, just practically speaking, that is my experience. And and so it will tend and so it tends to be with relatively privileged people um, uh, who are very wed to the existing dominant oppressive social order and, and the benefits that it's bestowed upon them. I'll bring up, you know, radically transformative ideas in conversation mm-hmm. and and. Lots of people really engage in that conversation. It's been striking. The more forthcoming and uninhibited and constraining and militant I've been about that, but you know, very respectful and 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 um, appreciative of dialogue in in all of that. People have engaged and are curious, like, well, what do you mean? And well, how is that possible? And isn't this true? And and I. I have found many, surprisingly many people really wanting to know. And so it's it's in that setting that I've found the most success. But I think part of how that's happened is um, these are often people who have read things that I've written and don't understand it always, but it's gotten under their skin anyway. And so, you know, I accept that some of what I publish is going to seem to some people like, and these are some of the criticisms I've gotten. Oh, you use too many big words or you sound too much like an academic or I can't stand to listen to you talk. I can't, I can't stand to read you, blah, blah, blah. You know, the ordinary citizen isn't going to get what you're saying. Well, some citizens are going to enough get what I'm saying or be troubled by enough by what I'm saying that they're curious. I, mean, I do know you. I do know you well, Joe, and and I feel like this conversation is very accessible. Um, I could be biased, but but I feel like what we've talked about so far is going to be accessible to most folks, and and it's not dumbing down the conversation at all. No, absolutely not. So absolutely. I, I think I think you're 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 quite effective in in your speech. Thanks. Uh, let's um. Let's take a little bit of a pivot here, but it's it's yeah. it's along the same lines. I mean, it all is, uh, and that's what we're going to boil things down to. Um, what role does capitalism play in the continued destruction of the earth? Well, you know, along with the things we've already talked about, like determining what we think and what we desire in a way that doesn't really let us think for ourselves and notice our own desires um, as unique and as things we have to develop and discover uh, and evolve, um, comes just just this insatiable devouring of the earth and and pretending like we're not doing it. So you'll hear lots about climate change and how we need new forms of energy so that we aren't, you know, continuing with global warming. But then but but the way we're destroying the earth is not just in climate change or global warming it's in many 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 ways and right. it's a symptom and, of ecological overshoot right yeah and that's not getting talked about that's another of the things i've written about so like there was a book i reviewed that the, a book review that get, that was published that i was asked to do and and it was this once a 
so-called psychoanalytic environmental criticism book and and it looked and it kept talking about neoliberalism as though that's all you need to critique in economics and and she would the author Sally Weintraub would start to talk about capitalism and and then it, as in a critical way but then she'd flee from it and go back to just neoliberalism and elaborate on that she would do the same she did that multiple times in the book mm-hmm. that starting to go there and then flee from it. She did the same thing with the multiple forms of environmental devastation. She would start to talk about those. Then she would conflate it all right back down to global warming or climate change. But really, you know, you can put as many solar panels as you want out in the southwest United States desert and you're not changing environmental devastation. There is still unbelievable mining going on around the earth to to get the the materials we need well to make those solar panels and to make our computers to make all our things technological and we're not only create you know destroying like the land we mine the 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 life that exists there but we're also leaving behind all sorts of toxicity in the doing of that and we aren't being honest about the scientific the scientifically known harm that's being done to the earth in that process and and so scientists are silenced engineers are silenced by capitalist capitalistic desires um and so and so people don't know so there's the education component again that you've talked about my son is a geotechnical uh, engineer and professor and consultant and has seen some of the most horrific mines across the world and and the tailings dams and ponds behind them and and how it's so how companies corporations are so resistant to looking at the the harm that's being caused by those and resistant to knowing what engineering can tell them that they need to consider um, in in considering how do we keep the earth um, livable for um, for the flora and fauna that are here. It's like is engineering a techno fix? Whoa! So right there's there's another illusion delusion. Um, no, I. What do you hear from your son? What does he tell you? He, the kinds of things I've just been saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's he's not like in your face, radical militant like I can be, but he is very ethical and um, very scientific and engineering, um, knowledgeable and doesn't run from what we are doing to the earth and doesn't run from um, what our society's resistance is to knowing what we're doing to the earth and and how we're doing it all across the planet and how the corporate world doesn't want to know about any of this, doesn't want to know about what are the effects on future generations, doesn't want to know, doesn't want the current population 
populace to understand any of this. He he gets all of that. And so from from his position, you know, he's wondering some of the same things we're talking about from his position in the world. How can he influence that? He has some of these same questions. Do you have a problem with the term natural resources? Yeah, yeah, I do. It's terrible. It's it's just a commodification of life. The ground I'm looking at out my window is not a resource for profit. It's life. I mean, can do we destroy it for profit? Yeah, but do we? And is some of that necessary? Yeah, you know, wolves kill other animals. I mean, you know, this is life is is difficult, and there is death, and there is killing. Um, but do humans unnecessarily kill and destroy? Absolutely. And so we, when we say natural resources, it's like, oh, it's just a thing for us to use. And we don't have to consider, you know, what is, what is the life we are taking in the doing of that? So we have a biodiversity and a climate and an ecological overshoot problem and all of these really big issues that really none of us knows what to do with, right? Like the, the White House right now, they're, they're studying ways to geoengineer the atmosphere so we can keep mm-hmm. going. I mean, that's, that's, okay. it's, uh, yes. it's crazy. Yes. And then, they, and then yeah. we have that, that you, you're welcome to touch on that here, but, but it just, and, and we've talked about this a lot. I know Joe, but, all of these existential issues and yet the wilderness movement today and the big green NGOs are focusing on recreation. Yeah. It's yeah. just, it's maddening. It's, I mean, yeah. our, our life support systems and the life on earth that has evolved for hundreds and billions of years, hundreds of millions and billions of years. And, and, and we're worried about building a, a new mountain bike trail. I mean, it's like, am I in a bad dream? Can you slap me through the screen here and wake me up? (laughs) Right. Right. And so, and, and there's this reliance on, as you said, techno fixes, right? Oh, just more solar panels. Um, Or we're going to create new technological things we haven't thought of yet. And that's going to fix everything. And so it's fine if we just keep with our excessive practices, we'll technologically fix them all. So it's, it's like, it's magical thinking. Um, and yeah, it's just, you know, we'll build new mountain bike trails and we'll have more and more people going on them. We'll have more and more people penetrating. I'll use a phallic metaphor. There. <laughs> penetrating the wilderness. That's right. <laughs> That's, and uh, yeah. It's a phallocentric way, you know, <laughs> and, and as, as though we don't have to have respect for the wilderness and as though, we can like appropriate it and it's still wilderness when of course it isn't anymore. Um, We can imagine we're out there in wild country, but we've really um, displaced the animals who made it once wild. We've rendered it in many ways, not wild anymore while we're imagining ourselves these wonderfully connected to nature um, in tune with the wild 
beings. And really, it's just it's it's um, it's a proxy for capitalism. Yeah, yeah. and and, yeah. and for happiness, yeah. right? I can I'm doing this thing that I've been told makes me happy. What influence does capitalism and corporate foundational money have on the big green NGOs? Yeah, I think it's twofold. We touched on this a little bit at, right at the beginning, I think it was. Um, so it's one. I mean, they've been seduced by big money. Um, I mean, Montana Wilderness Association started with, you know, one employee at one point, no employees at one point, and then, you know, built and built and now has, I don't know what its current budget is. Last I knew, which was a long time ago, it was $5 million a year. It's God knows what it is now. They have, last I knew, they had this lovely old brick building um, that would be very, very expensive to buy in Helena, Montana for its offices. You can say the same thing about Greater Yellowstone Coalition and say the same thing about the Wilderness Society. Um, they've all been um, really just gradually seduced by money, by bigger and bigger money. And, you know, so th there's a price to pay for that. And it's it's their values, it's their worldviews are being bought. And they don't, so the other thing that happens is they don't realize they're being bought. I, again, I, I do think mostly they, those employees believe they're doing something good and, and they have bought into, um, which is really, uh, they've bought into a really anti-visionary, anti-critical, anti-broad thinking way of, of viewing um, environmentalism, of viewing the human and of viewing society but they have bought into it and they see themselves as doing good and they they don't realize what's happened to them they are as what castoriadis called heteronymous right they aren't freely thinking that's painful the truth is painful i spoke with somebody in the conservation community in bozeman not too long ago and they told me that groups like ours using the Big Green's names in vain, <laughs> I thought, which was an interesting expression as if they're godlike, mm -hmm. um, is, um, is, is very hurtful and, and not constructive. And to me, that was just very telling of uh, the entire situation. Um, yeah, this, know, this truth is very, it's very painful and it's, it's, it's been painful it's, for us too, Joe. Absolutely. I remember there was a time one of my teachers, um, basically told me, um, you know, your clinical work is being ineffective in this way and that way, because you have not grown up in this specific set of ways. And I was like blown away and hurt. And I had a falling out with him and I realized sometime later he was absolutely correct, but it, it did hurt. It was embarrassing. It was humiliating. Mm -hmm. um, it was, it was, you know, um, um, relationship destructive, but he, <laughs> but he was right. And, 
And I did come to terms with those things. And it has made all the difference in the world. And so, you know, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not even sorry that some of the things I'm saying are hurtful in, so, in the sense that I'm not sorry that I felt hurt when this man who was Willie Apollon said the things to me he did. I'm glad he did. I mean, I am in, in, you know, eternally and immeasurably grateful that he did. Um, so, yeah, that's, it's what you said. Like, that's part of growing up. And the grassroots wants to get us back on course, right? I mean, I, I don't like, I'm sure that folks in the big greens care as well, but, but like you said, they're just blinded by the system and they're just so bought into it. Yeah. But you know, I'm, I'm going to say too, I want to go back to the criticism of um, a lot of the grassroots environmental community you know, that's where I've gotten pushback. So there's kind of pushback from the mainstreams you just mentioned. But some of that comes also from the grassroots. It's like, you know, oh, you're not being positive. You're just saying all this, you know, impossible day, you know, dreaming the impossible transformation of society. You're making it so I can't have a friendly working relationship with so-and-so in this big green corporation, like as though it's inherently destructive to call people out on things that they're doing that are damaging. You know, it's a, it's a flight then from those grassroots folks from the horrors of, of what's occurring. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's a symptom in them of that flight that uh, that they have these critis- criticisms that are just, you know, not grounded um, in any real um, defensively logical argument. Right. That's a good point, right? It does come from within the grassroots as well. So, and, and, we're, and we're all fighting this. To some extent. I'm sorry. The most virulent um, responses, really attacks that I've gotten for the things I've been saying for several years now, more than that, has come from the grassroots community, Mm -hmm. not from the mainstream. Although I will say the mainstream's best strategy is to ignore me, Um, uh, right? If they pay attention to me publicly, then they're letting the public know more about um, criticisms of them and they don't want that. But still, um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's cure. It's a, it's a curiosity to me. It's a puzzlement, a puzzling thing that it's from the grassroots that I've gotten the most uh, vicious and degrading characterizations of me for the things I'm saying that I think are, are really just sound cultural criticism. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the messaging of Gaiwa, the Galton Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance, has has held up um, pretty well, and um, we are starting to get more and more people, you know, signed up and paying attention. So I think our group has been been very effective. Um, there's still a lot of work to be done. It's an endless amount of work, and it's uh, 
a very tricky landscape to navigate on on many fronts. But how do you see Gaiwa playing uh, a role in, in changing the dominant hegemonic corporate controlled wilderness movement that's been captured by corporate money and foundations? Well, see see what you think. Maybe this is a good place to to wrap up. So so I I live in sort of two worlds, you know, the environmental like vocationally and avocationally, if you will, the, the environmental movement world and the psychoanalytic world. The psycho the clinical psychoanalytic world and the the social transformation, the environmentalism transformation world. And so I present at psychoanalytic cultural criticism conferences and I publish in journals um, in that domain and what's come out of that now is a small group of us from well and I use in my so I use in my presentations and in my writings um, some of what's on the ground in environmentalism that you and I've been talking about. So some of what's happening um, within the mainstream environmental groups and within the grassroots environmental groups and between them, you know, and so I link that then to with psychoanalytic concepts, both change of individuals and change of of civilization. And And out of that has been formed now um, and and out of others doing it too, right? Has but but not but being marginalized even by the psychoanalytic cultural criticism world, um, psychoanalytic environmental criticism ha- is like almost the the stepchild of the bigger picture. But we are changing that and getting more um, listened to. And so now recently. Those of us who in recent years have been presenting and publishing on this stuff um, have formed a group with members from right now from Canada and the United States and across four time zones. But I expect that will grow. We don't even have a name yet, but something like my imagined name for it is psychoanalytic activists for the earth and the people. And so but just that that has formed and just that just the the fact that we're being taken more seriously in the psychoanalytic cultural criticism world is i think telling we're being effective we're disturbing a comfortable discourse in a comfortable discourse is all over the place comfortable in varying ways okay and what role do you see gaiwa playing in this movement so i i hope that we can remain courageous in the ways we have, like with our vision statement, with with um, with Gaiwa embracing uh, a board member who's the current president, like me, and all the things I say that stir up so much discomfort among so many that that we can um, disturb some of the. Um, illogical thinking of various communities involved in what's going to happen with the future of the land, especially public lands, but also their integration or integration, yeah, with um, <clears throat> with uh, private lands, that we can um, continue to get 
more and more people to think about the kinds of things you and I have been talking about today and that we do it courageously, respectfully, right? When I was confronted by Willie Appelaw, he was not disrespectful to me. When I'm saying the things I say that are critical, I, I'm not disrespectful. I, I like some of these people. Um, I think they're wrong. Um, I think that's fine. And so I hope that we can grow our ability to do that and and grow our ability to just receive the the pushback we're going to receive and that we can keep speaking and that we reach more and more people and that we generate more and more critical mass that, you know, infiltrates throughout the the varying mini societies and the larger collective society of of uh, of Montana and the the northwestern United States, etc. Okay, one more question that comes to mind: What keeps you up at night, and what gives you hope? A thing that I dream about and wake up with. The thing I and I'll, I'll kind of encapsulate it to say the thing, but it, it, it it's a right way. It's a representative accurately representative way to say it. The, the thing that I dream the most about and that wakes me up most at night and that I take notes on often for future speaking and writing, because I'll, I'll have ideas just come to me in the middle of the night that I wake up with and I'm like, oh my God, I don't want to forget this. Kind of like you have a dream and you don't want to forget it. And if you don't write it down and you know, you've woken up at 1.30 in the morning with it, you may well forget it but you decide to write it down and there it is. And so it's, it's, it's most often about exactly these things we're talking about and, um, and their, their interfaces, how, how these are all, inex- all the things we've talked about today are inextricable from one another and have to be taken together uh, as Guattari's three ecologies and, and as Aldo Leopold's, um, who was an ecologist, uh, and a professor at University of Wisconsin Madison, and uh, his land ethic um, that that the hope is in speaking forthrightly and militantly in the way I use it, meaning forceful, confrontational, but um, but not degrading, respectful and inviting of real dialogue, even if it makes me uncomfortable and my dialogical partner uncomfortable. Okay. That's, that's what I wake up at night mostly with. Okay, and, w- and what gives you hope? That's the last question. Yeah, it's very much related to that. It's, it's, it's that I, I think we, we are making progress, the kind of progress points I, I was talking about just a few minutes ago. I, and I, I think I think that, I mean, we're known now. There's no, there's no running away from in Southwest Montana, even though groups like Greater Yellowstone Coalition, Wild Montana, and the Wilderness Society want to pretend like we don't exist. Um, people know that they are very they are running into all sorts of opposition from other environmentalists, even if they don't know the name Gallon and Yellowstone Wilderness Alliance. <laughs> they know 
there are people like us who are who are radically as in very comprehensively and looking at all how all these things tie together who are radically opposed to what the big greens are doing and who um who are very serious in their opposition and they wonder what the hell is going on we have been very successful at um bringing that wondering and questioning in into people's minds and i think in a pretty broad way that's great yeah one thing to not lose sight of uh, is also the forest service forest services complicity and all this too and and you know back in washington how they uh how they do business um so we, we can't ever lose sight of that as well um, so they're all they're all working hand in hand to uh, manufacture the uh, the consent essentially. So uh, absolutely, we're, we're pushing well, back against there's, that. There's, <clears throat> there's uh, the pushback, and I don't know, maybe a bit reactionary, but understandable. I I would defend it as, but still, it's reactionary um, as opposed to revolutionary. Right? It's just kind of impulsive and nasty, but it does make the point. It's it, instead of United States. Forest Service, it's United States Timber Service. And, you know, I mean, yeah. And and, and it should also be cattle service, mm-hmm. uh, right? We're going to do what's good for the ranchers to make profit and the timber industry to make profit, but and, and the recreational industry, right? It's, it's the United States Forest Profit um, Service. And, uh, yeah, they Congress is complicit too, right? They haven't put out a clean wilderness bill in forever. There's a new one in yep. new one in, uh, Nevada right now where they're releasing a whole bunch of wilderness study areas and, and no one's talking about it. They're just talking about the new wilderness. That's, you know, right. that's going to be designated, but it's like what actually happens on the ground, right? Those wilderness study areas were already more or less protected. They'll now they'll remain protected, but then these other areas are going to be, uh, released for multiple use and abuse. So, yeah, you know, that's that, that sort of stuff just, it needs to stop. And um, so uh, everybody's complicit in, in all of this. And so it can't be stopped if we aren't naming it and talking about it. And, and if people like the grassroots environmental community can't find a way to be brave enough and to have enough equanimity calmness to to confront those who would deny these things and to insist upon respectful actually democratic conversations yeah we've got to do that and again i do think we are we are making registrable headway in that but and i think focusing the, the the criticism at the big greens is is really the most important thing because they act as the representatives of the system. They're the propaganda arm. Um, they purport to represent, you know, the citizenry, et cetera. So I, I think, you know, the lion's share of, of the criticism in, in Southwest Montana right now, for instance, uh, really falls at their, at their feet. Um, yeah. You know, of course that's, not to not to let the Forest Service and Congress off the hook, but uh, the the whole system is just is just absolutely backwards. So, well, I, I want to once again add that the grassroots environmental movement has a responsibility here too. 
when it says, no, only be positive. No, only talk about why it's good to preserve land. No, don't don't criticize the big greens. I need to get along with them. Um, no, don't criticize capitalism. You're going to be called a socialist or a commie, right? The gra- this is from the grassroots environmental movement, parts of it, yep. and, s- and sometimes large parts of it. And that's... that's. And it does have an effect on, on the process, but it is more happening behind the scenes, right? In emails. And I mean, that does manifests itself outside of course well i'm saying i'm saying if that weren't happening internally mm-hmm. the grassroots environmental community as a collective could be far more effective yeah. if it adopted this kind of comprehensive um uh, uh, sort of interdisciplinary criticism and were as um open in its commentary on it as we are uh, i think that would be hugely influential right right yeah i totally agree it's kind of like adam it's kind of like how the democratic party has let itself become part of the the one party system in chomsky's term the capital party it's not maybe it's not as bad as that i don't know but it's along those lines right well, I think that's a great place to to stop. It's been a great conversation as always, Joe, and I appreciate you and what you do and how you apply your psychoanalysis to the wilderness and environmental movement. Uh, I think it's very it's very important to have your voice, and uh, and I appreciate you very much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for uh, thanks for your openness, your receptivity, and and your support and encouragement for some time now. <laughs> it's nice to not be quote alone in the wilderness all the time. Yes, I, I feel that way too. So thank you very much for your friendship and um, for walking this path together with all of us at Gaiwa and uh, all of our supporters out there. So have a great New Year's and I'm going to go take my polar plunge. I'm sort of ah. getting my getting my brain uh, ready for it, but uh, it's going to feel great. That's quite an immersion. <laughs> That's great. Enjoy. <laughs> I don't know if I'll enjoy the uh, the after effects. The, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I totally get it. I've I've immersed myself in some very cold waters at times. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Thanks, Joe. Have a good uh, Sunday. Take care. Yes, you too. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. Thank you.